back to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Well, for everyone who's out there who has been waiting patiently for us or waiting impatiently for us, thank you for waiting. We're glad to be back. It's nice to be to to have a working computer to be able to sit down and have conversations again. It's been a nice break, but we're Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was a nice break. <laughs> it was. But we're ready to get back into it. Yes. One of the things that we realized while we were on our break is that doing two episodes a week was a little overwhelming. And we were spending way too much time doing the podcast and not enough time living life. So one of the things we're going to do for the time being is we're going to reduce our release schedule down to releasing one podcast a week. We'll still alternate between readings and discussions, but it's going to be at a slower rate. And who knows, if we get far enough ahead, then we might go back to two. But yeah, we'll at, see. At this point, the bottleneck is the editing. It takes me a long time to get through editing each reading and each discussion. So if I can figure out a way to edit faster, or if we can figure out a way to reduce the need for editing as we get better having discussions and talking correctly. As we learn to talk better. As we learn to talk more gooder. <laughs> then <laughs> then that can that can potentially increase our release schedule as well. So anyway, wanted to give that little bit of intro because we have been gone for so long. But yeah, here we are back in chapter five. The third chapter that has parents as inspirers inspirers as a title and is this the last parents as inspirers chapter or is there one no more? there's one more there's one more after this chapter would be chapter six is six next. is primal ideas derived from parents okay so we'll have one more chapter of parents as inspirers and then we get to move on to something else not like this hasn't been three chapters of completely different things true but yeah so this is the parents as inspirers the things of the spirit and she starts out with kind of a callback to, uh, I have page 14 on here. I think that's chapter one. And she says, It is as revealers of God to their children that parents touch their highest limitations. Wait, were you reading from chapter five or chapter one? So that's chapter, so in chapter five, she says, It is okay. as revealers of God to their children that parents touch their highest limitations. And then back in chapter one, in the first place, they are the immediate and personally appointed deputies of the Almighty King. They have not only to fulfill his counsels regarding their children, but to represent his person. His parents are as God to the little child. And yet more constraining thought, God is to him what his parents are. So she has that little callback to say, hey, remember remember back when we discussed that? Where was that at? That was on page 14. Page 14, so that's not chapter 1. Is that not chapter 1? Uh, that's parents as rulers. I'm sorry, that's chapter two. So that's in chapter two that she makes that comment. But yeah, God is to him what his parents are. So it's that thought that the child's image of God is going to derive a lot from their image of their father. And I know we talked about it then, so we don't really need to get into it now. But anyway, that was the first thought that I had, is that little callback there. 
how to fortify them against doubt. She gives three ways. The first is to teach as the older generations were taught, biding their time and chance. The second is to deal with it as they come, and she has dogma for that. And then the third is to give them hold of a vital truth. And again, she's going to go through which option she doesn't like first. So the first of the three ways, the first unfair. Basically, it doesn't give them anything other than this is the way it's always happened. And so if when they're attacked on any some point and they're either in the wrong or they don't understand why, then they get defensive. And you can't operate well from a defensive standpoint because then you're just having to to counteract what they're being said what well, not, is being said to you not only they jump to the defenses but they jump to the conclusion that there is no defense possible of that which they have received as, as truth because the other person is coming out as the aggressor right and so uh, she she finishes this section with and they go over without a struggle to the side of the most aggressive thinkers of their day i feel like we see this you can see this on college campuses quite a bit where kids don't have a solid foundation and they go to school and their views change to whatever their professor's view is at the time. Yeah. And that's also why children and people who have childlike thoughts have a hard time getting into discussions of real things is because they don't have any concept of what they actually believe or think and they don't know what a discussion or an argument actually is over a very serious topic i think that's why we're seeing fewer discussions even at the congressional level these days that's why debate class is important it's it is very much why debate class is important learn how to form form a thought form an opinion and defend that opinion yeah that is that that's true i hadn't thought about that so the next is the evidences the dog sound dogmatic teachings right the sound dogmatic teachings evidences are not proofs religion without definite dogmatic teaching degenerates into sentiment but dogma as dogma offers no defense against the assaults of unbelief it's kind of religion without god religiosity is the answer or religion without understanding not quite the, this is just the way we've always done it, but this is what we believe because we are Christian or mm-hmm. because we believe in this faith without having an understanding of the why. Yeah. Even more than that, just a strict adherence to the the dogma without even thinking about it. I, I can think of several instances, several folks off the top of my head who have trouble with certain aspects of life that I don't think are issues that I don't think are necessarily sin but because they grew up in a church that said it was well then it is and some of the folks I've talked to have a hard time putting those two things together anyway it's a random thought that I don't really have a conclusion to I had to look up the word elucidation that's a good one it's an explanation that makes something clear a clarification Children should be taught Bible history with every elucidation which modern research makes possible. So children should be taught Bible history with every clarity. Every explanation that makes it clearer. Excl- explanation. explanation. Oof. 
So children should be taught Bible history with every explanation or that makes it clearer. Explanation or clarification that makes it clearer, which modern research makes possible. And she gives the example of the Assyrian monuments as proofs of the Bible. You got the Dead Sea Scrolls. You got all of these things that, that modern research and history... Well, she says they should not be taught to think of the inscriptions on Assyrian monuments as proofs of the Bible, but rather as illustrations of those records. Yeah, not as a proof, but as something that makes it clearer. Gotcha. Okay. As as a subsidiary proof. Right, right. As a supporting fact. That makes sense. Like a supporting fact. A supporting (laughs) document. It's late already. It's a footnote. A Bible footnote. Good way of putting it. Because I'm really smart. Yeah, okay. All right, the next one. (laughs) The next one. uh, The Outlook Upon Current Thought. You are. I think you're very smart. I'm glad someone thinks so. The Outlook Upon Current Thought. Contemporary opinion is the fetish of the young mind. Young people want to know religion and life, and they'll ask the opinions, and they won't necessarily go with what their parents said. Mm -hmm. But the other side looks most attractive yeah they by no they by no means confine themselves to such leaders of thought as their parents have elected to follow on the contrary the other side of every question is the attractive side for them the grass is always greener i feel like so when you talk about political affiliations the republicans or i've heard it said that children are democrats until they grow up a little bit and then they turn into Republicans. Hmm. You know, if you're coming out of a staunchly Republican household, you, the child, goes to college and the Democratic way of thinking is very intriguing and it's very enticing and it's very different and new and exciting and fanciful and fun. And then as you get a little bit older, you go back to what it was that your parents believed and thought. They go to the most aggressive thinkers of the day. Yeah. Or they just go to something different. They, they go to different than what their parents said. Mm-hmm. If their parents were strictly this, then they went to that because it's enticing that there's something different. And she gets into this again. And this should not come as any surprise to parents. It sh- this is what happens. And she mentioned it in um, chapter 3, mm-hmm. page 17. 17. Although the emancipation of the children is gradual, they acquire day by day more of the art and science of self-government. Yet there comes a day when the parents' right to rule is over. There is nothing left for them to do but to abdicate gracefully and leave their grown-up sons and daughters free agents, even those still living at home. What's interesting is that she says, even though still living at home, and I realize we're going back to now chapter 3, but the thought of your children are emancipated even before they leave your house. So is she talking about high school-age children? Or is she talking about children who are who are grown up and in the workforce that are still living in their house. I think that goes back to a cultural context. And I don't know when people left the house in at the turn of the 19th century or 18th The turn of the 19 19th, 19th century <laughs> to the 20th century, whatever turn that would During be. During the late 1800s. <laughs> so then, okay, that's Did not- the did the girls stay at home longer and they needed to be emancipated in their parents' mind? Did the boys stay at home and and go to work from home? I don't know, but that let's translate that to today's day and age because there are a lot of folks that I work with 
uh, young young engineers right out of college or architects right out of college that still live with their folks because they frankly can't afford to live on their own. Yep. Um, I lived with my parents for any number of years in college because I went to college for seven years. Half of that was when you were living with me. Part of, Yeah, part of that was when we were married. That's true. But the other part of it was living with my folks. Mm-hmm. But I was very much an emancipated child at that point. I had also spent a year at college. A year away. I had spent a year away and then came home. But I was still an emancipated child living at home. And it's it's become a more and more common thing, at least since our parents' generation, for children to stay at home for longer. Because we frankly can't afford to not. And especially since the um, Great Recession. Since, since the recession of 08. It's become more common, which I realize that's over 10 years ago. Yeah. And it has dr- dramatically affected an entire generation. It absolutely has. I in, was, in many, many ways. It has. I was very lucky to have the career path that I had because I wasn't hugely affected. But also, I didn't graduate until 2011. So I was a couple years after it hit. And the industry that I was going into had had a little bit of time to rebound. Figure out what was going on. Yeah. But even then, I, I had any number of classmates who graduated with no jobs. So they went back to grad school because why not? So anyway, um, that's, the, uh, that's, a, that's a little bit of back thinking about chapter three. But she's, she's moving on to free will and thought. And the whole training from babyhood onward should be in view of this plunge. And that when the time comes, the children follow the leader they have elected. Whether it's their parents or not. Right. And that the parents... Shouldn't be surprised. And we should expect it. Because we claim the same type of suffrage from our parents. Right. Right. And we should want that for our children. We, sh- we should want them to find someone to follow. And if we've done our job through the years and taught them and taught them the why and taught them how to think, we can reasonably hope that they would come toward the same conclusions that we have. But they might not. Or that they'll come to good conclusions all on their own that are different than ours. But are still good conclusions. Yeah. So moving on to the preparation. There is much to be done beforehand, although nothing when the time comes. So she talks about the notion that any contemporary authority is infallible, may may be steadily undermined from infancy onward. Even ourselves. I just realized you need to undermine yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Make sure you say, I don't know, instead of taking a random shot at their pertinacious questionings right because children ask so many questions that's another good word pertinacious pertinacious <laughs> she's full of good words she's fun to listen to and yeah. the, the pro- possibility and nowadays the probability of error in a printed book well the error in a printed book i would say is probably still about the same or at least in the printed books that we read but it's the error in the internet research that more so often happens. Well, and that can also bleed into the ebooks and the self-publishing. Oh, yeah, that's true. I guess I wasn't thinking that. But you can't take everything at face value. You absolutely can't. You have to do your own research. I was taught growing up that Wikipedia is not an acceptable source. However, I would go to Wikipedia because they link to all of their sources. And you go to those sources. Well, and Wikipedia is still not a credible source, although it's Oh, so much better now than it was when we were in high school and college. True. But it is a great overview of just about any topic you want. Because the folks that edit Wikipedia 
have tried to be very good at having correct things. I think especially now in the era of fake news and instant reactions and getting your news from Twitter it, it's and Facebook, it's so much more important to be able to dig a little bit deeper and not take everything at face value. We saw a huge example of this a couple weekends ago, um, and I, I barely followed it, but there was a, a confrontation between some people in the Capitol, uh, two groups of people. Some high schoolers from a Catholic school and oh, yeah. some protesters. And turns out, you know, they, they report the story and it blows up on Saturday. This was the kid And in- on Monday, the news outlets are almost issuing apologies for how quickly they came to conclusions. Well, except some of them didn't. Except some of them didn't. Uh, that generally. Yeah. And I, I was reading the apologies going, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a little ridiculous. And the instant reaction was crazy. This was the uh, the high schooler in the MAGA hat, the Make America Great Again hat, and the uh, Native American who was banging his drum. He said he was a veteran. He's not a veteran. Again, conclusions were drawn. Yeah. More facts come out later. Yeah, and if you take everyone at face value, the story's going to be really weird. There was all kinds of stuff that was reported on in that that was absolutely not true, but but yeah no it's but again it's what what do you listen to and yeah. and how many grains of salt do you take it with? So I was listening to an interview by Joe Rogan, and I don't remember who he was interviewing, but he was um, he was talking with a a German man, an, an older German uh, who had been around for a long time, and he was saying like yeah when I was a kid. I, I think that when I was a kid in Germany, our media was more trustworthy than the American media is now. Hmm. And the, the thought was, well, now wait a minute. In Germany a long time ago, the media was under the thumb of the government. And it was very much filtered filtered by the government. And it said exactly what the government said. And and Rogan was like, it, you, you, it wasn't trustworthy. It wasn't true. And the guy was like, yeah, I know. And we all knew it. We all knew that <laughs> that what was being written wasn't true. And so it bred in us this need to read deeper and to think deeper and to read from five to seven different sources and talk to different people to figure out what on earth actually happened. Because what was written was assuredly not true. Interesting. As opposed to here in America, our parents read the newspaper and went, well, I read an article, it must be true, because we have journalistic integrity. And it was true, and at some point it became not true. And in some outlets, journalistic integrity is completely out the window, and it's now just journalistic opinion. So it was an interesting anecdote that I think illustrates the point that we do con- we do need to continue to be very... We, we need to be able to say, I don't know. And we need to be able to say, well, that person might not know either. Let's go find a different source and a different source. And a different source. In fact, I fell into the hole of of uh, flat Earth theory today again. <laughs> <laughs> John got obsessed with this a couple months back. It's been rather funny to listen. It's so much fun, the, and and it's kind of sad also that there are folks that uh, believe fully and fervently that the Earth is flat. And I was listening to an interview. It was a it was an interview that they posted on YouTube from KLBJ, the the rock station there in Austin. 
and I clicked on it and I started hearing the voices. I was like, oh, that's that's weird. That's a really familiar voice. <laughs> I was like, no, I know that voice. We used to live in Austin and that was the morning show I listened to on the drive in. Anyway, so they had a guy in there who was who was talking about his belief in flat earth and how the astronauts didn't actually go to the moon or space and satellites are just weather balloons that are really high and all kinds of crazy things. And my thought was, well, I mean, I, I realize you've watched some YouTube videos, but there's so much out there. You you can't find one thought and go with it. If you find someone that some if you find something that someone's saying that sounds good or interesting, great. But try and find someone else. Try mm-hmm. and find try and find a bunch of people, and then listen to the other side of the argument. Listen to the people that are trying to debunk it. Well, in this kind, the results of this kind of training in the way of mental balance and repose are invaluable. So. She says, basically, when you learn how to think and when you are training your children not to just blindly trust, that's invaluable. And she goes on to talk about science and not just blindly trusting what science says. Well, there you go. Maybe I jumped the gun a little bit. And one of the (laughs) things I thought was fascinating is she said, it would seem to be the better part of wisdom to wait half a century before fitting the discovery of today into the general scheme of things. Yeah. Not because it's not true. But because we're not able to adjust to it yet. The science of the proportion of things. Makes me think of nutrition science. Because nutrition science is all over the place. What's funny is in book one, she does have a lot of nutrition things. Oh, no. For, yeah. Oh, no. It's funny to read. That's Those are slightly out of date. Yeah. But yeah, even now, there was a study that came out recently that uh, that was low-carb diets are really bad and they'll take a bunch of time off your life. And about a week later, there was another study that came out. No, low-carb diets are great. They increase your lifespan. Yay. Then, Conflicting information. Right? So it's all over the place. And we might know something in five to ten years. What we do know is that eating real food is the way to go. Whatever real food means, real food is the way to go. Paleo, keto, <laughs> dairy-free, I, I don't know. Basic, <laughs> basically, as, quick, as close as you can get to food that you grew out of your backyard or shot out of out of your uh, four-wheeler shot in the back 40, that that's going to be the best food you can eat. The, the pig that you raised and you fed. Anyway, nutrition science. It's great. She's talking about science ebbing and flowing like the tide. Mm-hmm. Again, hey, a water analogy. Oh, there, yeah. <laughs> that showed up out. I, I missed that. We weren't looking for it again. Is that five But now? she's also not saying don't talk about science and don't talk about nature these these names need to be the heroes of science should be heroes great names household words and she wants them to be curious and intelligent and informed about what's going on outside what's going on in science what's going on in the physical world around them right which makes sense and even even as she says the it it should you should mark the advances and the fact and and know that the fact of the teaching of today may be the error of tomorrow because new light may lead to new conclusions even yeah. from facts already known but it is still good to keep up with whatever as long as you don't trust in science on ultimate questions of origin and life right so the next section 
we move on to then is the knowledge is progressive. And she talks about how the brain and how thoughts and ideas work. And this is one place she talks about ideas where an idea is a living thing that will take possession of them and establish a place in the substance of the brain and draw its own train of ideas after it. Mm -hmm. And the child doesn't necessarily know that they're thinking these things and they're kind of in line Mm -hmm. until they actually do and they're going oh i see this i see this i see this and she says it's a sense of power delightful sense of power but they do not intend or try to think this or that it comes of their own and that's where one of one of the charlotte mason ideas is to spread a generous feast of ideas so that the child can make these connections on their own and let them marinate and sit so the child thinks these thoughts and connections and you feed them good thoughts but you don't connect them for them right you you let them find where they're making the own their own connections that's interesting you're giving them the building blocks right and letting them play with them much like you give children young children toys and don't really show them what the toy does and you let the child explore it mm-hmm. i remember someone telling me at some point that if you gave if you give a baby a toy and show them exactly what it does the child will do exactly what you showed them it will do but if you give a child a toy and don't show them what it does then the child's going to experiment and do things with the toy that the toy wasn't necessarily designed to do but they're going to find the things that that toy can do which is exciting. Discover all the different aspects of it. Right. So the idea then would be the same for children as they grow is don't tell them what they need to learn. Give them the ability to find out what they need to learn. And I know we weren't going to really touch on her principles, but this goes back to principles 8 through kind of 11 and 12. In, in that education is a life. It talks about the mind feeding on ideas. Therefore, the children should have a generous curriculum. Oh, Not right. just a receptacle into which the ideas are dropped or that we link them together, present them in due order, um, that children, the child, the normal child has the powers of minds fit to deal with all the knowledge proper. And they'll link everything together on their own. And that is education. Right. That linking of everything together. Because we're not talking about filling an empty vessel. We're not talking about writing on a blank slate. We're talking about a person coming to learn things. Feeding a child's mind. It is a proper diet in which the mind will digest and assimilate as the body does foodstuffs. Interesting. So we move on to uh, looking at thoughts as they come. And she has this quote, Take care of your thoughts and the rest will take care of itself. Let a thought in and it will stay. We'll come again tomorrow and the next day. We'll make a place for itself in your brain and we'll bring many other thoughts like itself. I looked that kind of quote up, and it is it was a popular sermon in the 1800s. Really? Yeah. It was a, an, an acronym, W-A-T-C-H, watch. Watch your words, your actions, your thoughts, your companions, and your habits. And it was also in The Science of Education by Richard Goss Boone in the U.S., but it also has links to Chinese Proverbs. Uh, Navajo Proverbs, Marcus Aurelius, and Gandhi. This idea of thought to word to action. Let me just read this back up. 
You plant a thought, reap a word. Plant a word, reap an action. Plant an action, reap a habit. Plant a habit, reap a character. Plant a character and reap a destiny. I feel like she's brought that up before. I feel like I brought this up the last time that we talked about this. No, no. Yeah, probably. Apparently, Meryl Streep also, when she was playing Margaret Thatcher, quoted this also. Nice. So. There you go. I just like that uh, Gandhi, the Native Americans, and the Chinese all collaborated and made sure they were all on the same page. It's a universal truth. No, they collaborated. Yeah. It's a universal truth. They had a meeting. They had a meeting. <laughs> Up on those satellites that don't exist? <laughs> yeah. They they spoke over the weather balloons. <laughs> Transported themselves to the Alpha Centauri. Yeah, right. The Appeal of the Children. Where are we at? Uh, page 46, I think. Because we just did the To Look at Thoughts as They Come. Yeah, but we're not done with that yet. Oh, we're not? I'm sorry. No. Because there's a quote here. Oh, I want to know. See that ye enter not into temptation. Who do you think said that? Jesus. You're right. Well, and your, your business is to look at the thoughts as they come. To keep out the wrong thoughts, let in the right thoughts. See that ye enter not into temptation. So it's, it's not as hard to understand as the rules for the English nominative. And is of infinitely more profit. It's a great safeguard to know that your reason is capable of proving any theory that you allow yourself to entertain. Basically saying, hey, if you want to prove something, you can get there. Mm -hmm. Flat earthers, for example. If you want to prove something, you can get there. Mm -hmm. And you should know that. And you should be aware of that and use that to your benefit. Right. And use it to discern what thoughts are coming in. So that when you hear someone saying something that sounds good, sounds exciting and new, you can take that and run it through the program and run it down to its final ends and figure out what it actually means. Yeah. Interesting. Moving on to the appeal of children? Yes. All right. So moving on to the appeal of children. So the the appeal of children is in their innocence. And we see... Especially babes in their mother's arms as as innocent children. And we would love to keep them unspotted from the world. But at the same time, we we too quickly conclude that they cannot understand spiritual things. And that, she is saying, is because our understanding and grasp of the things of the spirit is too lax. Mm Mm-hmm. So because we can't understand it, we expect that they can't understand it. She's going, this is this is where we're all together wrong. But sh- because children live in the light of the morning land, the spirit world has no mysteries for them. And that parable and travesty of the spiritual spirit world, the fairy world, where all things are possible. Is it not their favorite dwelling place? And this reminded me of a G.K. Chesterton quote. And this is a long one, so bear with me. Fairy tales, then, are not responsible for producing in children fear, or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That's in the child already, because it's in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the boogie. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of the boogie. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him 
is a St. George to kill the dragon. Exactly what the fairy tale does is this. It accustoms him for a series of clearer pictures to the idea that these limitless terrors had a limit, and that these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God, that there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. That's why fantasy fiction is so powerful. Yeah. Even today, as an adult, it's still powerful. This is this is what they know intrinsically. Mm-hmm. You hear thought that that children speak the language of angels, and I've I've heard this the story of a, a little four or five year old girl who, when when her baby baby sibling, I think baby brother was born, was very insistent that that she be left alone with the child, with the infant, <laughs> and her mother was like, um okay and and she overheard her whispering to the baby baby tell me i'm forgetting the language of the angels and you know it but i'm forgetting it so i don't know that's i don't know i don't either i don't either but but it's the idea that they're closer to heaven because they're not as much in the world yet right Right. Now there's there's some there's probably some bits of truth to that, but but I mean what she's saying is exactly that that children don't have the they don't have the hard-heartedness that we do. The cynicalness. This, yeah, the cynicalness. Thank you. They they haven't blinded themselves by living life in only the way they can. And in the in the life of facts. Yeah. Without the imagination to accompany it. Right. Which is why it is so important to have children read outlandish things. Have them read fantasy. To read fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Give them a St. George to kill the dragon. Yeah. Have them dive into the into the world of Redwall. Where mice fight foxes with swords. Because it's a it's a world of fantasy that, that they can see. Mm-hmm. That is real. Even though it's not. Well, she talks more about what God should be to the child. Mm-hmm. Not a far off God, a cold abstraction, but a warm, breathing, spiritual presence about the path and about the bed. A presence in which he recognizes protection and tenderness in darkness and danger. And gives a, a rather lengthy description of her friend who has this, this vivid, vivid memory from childhood. Mm-hmm. Where she has to walk every day during the winter when it's dark, alone. And she was extremely scared of the unknown fear of something behind mm-hmm. her and the sounds. And so she would she would run and have, as her, as her heart beat, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. As her, her refrain in her mind. And that's from Psalm 32. Mm-hmm. And then she encounters the same circumstance as a grown woman. And immediately that thought of hiding in God came back. So not only well, was... First, first the old terror returned. Well, yeah, but the, the, the terror, the circumstance came back. The terror came back and immediately with it came the presence right. of God. Right. As a place to hide. Yeah. Our, uh, our childhood experiences don't go away. We don't outgrow them. And this is one of the issues of children growing up in not good homes is that as adults, 
your whole outlook on life is defined by that experience and well, maybe not defined by but it's colored by shaped it's it's molded. absolutely shaped and molded by that experience which is why it's so crucial to teach our children exactly goes back to the why for homeschooling for at least for us mm-hmm. is we are the shapers and molders of our children and that task and responsibility has been given to us by god and we are accountable both to him and to our children to give them the best of what we know right and it goes back to even in another chapter she talked about the the whispering the sweet nothings into baby's ears having them hear pleasant things so that when they get older those are the thoughts they have yeah so that was that was her example of experiences shaping the future so she moves on then to the mind of the child is good ground parable of the sower right where and that's from matthew chapter 13 the child is the open field the good ground where the sower goes forth to sow and the seed is the word And all teaching of children should be given reverently, with the humble sense that we are invited in this manner to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And it should be given dutifully and diligently with the awful sense that our cooperation would be appear to be a condition of the divine action. And I have a little uh, circle that I wrote. We teach the Bible. We trust the Spirit. And the Spirit will move and teach. But the Spirit requires us not to hinder. And so we teach the Bible. But we trust the Spirit to move and to teach. And we're still not supposed to hinder. Right. Because we absolutely can. Yeah. We can absolutely hinder our children from the truth and from education. And we can absolutely stunt their growth as people. And we can make the rest of their lives really, really hard. By how we set them up. By how we set them up. So this is from Matthew chapter 19. Talking about the little children coming. Mm Mm-hmm. And the suffer part, suffer the little children, can be translated, let alone, let them come, leave them alone. And forbid or hinder not is to keep them from coming. So you let them alone and let them come. And what I found very interesting that I hadn't put two and two together is this is immediately following the divorce and marriage passage that Jesus talked about. Really? Yeah. He he is trying, the Pharisees are trying to trap him. And saying, well, what do you, what do you what are your thoughts on divorce and marriage? And Moses gave us this law, and he, Jesus says it's about the hardness of your hearts that he gave you this law. And so he's talking about marriage first, and then the children come, huh. and and they're told to stop by the disciples. And he's like, no, 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 they need to come too. Interesting. So he's talking about these these ideals and the way things should work. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Or that's not a thing that I'd put together. So I think I think this is the quote of the chapter, to be honest. What you read. All our teaching of children should be given reverently with the humble sense that we are invited in this manner to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I think that captures a lot of the essence of what we're talking about in this chapter. And this is why I find it really hard to tell people that there can be a secular Charlotte Mason education. Yeah. Because, yes, her ideas can translate... But without the stirring of the Holy Spirit that she relies on so much, it's just books and education. And it's so much more than just an education. It is. It's a life. Yeah, it is. And faith 
and reliance upon God and the Holy Spirit is a part of the whole of life. Which, I mean, also it's it's hard to, it is very hard for me to fathom life without Christ and the Holy Spirit. Even just as a reason to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I can I can fathom a life of not going to church on Sunday mornings. I can imagine that pretty easily. What I can't imagine is is what flows forth from there. And I, I so growing up, I, I grew up in a Christian home and we went to church and faith was a part of life. And I was homeschooled and did Bible every year of my life. And that was a part of my home life. And I went to college and, and fell away and I didn't go to church and I didn't do anything for a long time. And thinking back to then, I, I was very rudderless. I had no real reason for existing other than to find whatever the next pleasurable thing was, whether it be hanging out with friends or drinking or video games or movies or heck, even learning. It was whatever my next fancy was. And that that's changed as God brought me back to himself. And it's not just about what makes me happy now. I mean, I'd still like doing things that make me happy, but that's not the sole purpose for my existence. But I think that, that note. yeah, I think that moves us into the last section here that children suffer from a deep-seated discontent. And she's talking about how children have a sense of sin, acute in proportion to their sensitiveness, and that children know that they're little evil things. And I, I don't. Well, in backing up real quick, um, okay. we do not take children seriously enough. Brought face to face with a child, we find that he is a very real person. But in our educational theories, we take him as something between a wax doll and an angel. Mm. And and this is along the lines of her first principle is children are born persons. Right. And that's one of the other things that really struck you and I when we found Charlotte Mason was that she actually talks to children. Right. She deals with them and sees them for what they are. She sees them as as sinful. But she also sees them as a person, right? not a subhuman. Well, that's something even before we found Charlotte Mason that we talked about quite a bit is how do we talk to our children? How do we address them? How do we correct them? Even even as babies, the, the twins who run around, I talk to them as people. Uh, Lily was doing something today and she was, she was trying to, I think she was trying to climb up into her seat and she was climbing up from a, from a place that she couldn't get up. I said... Uh, Lily, that's not going to work. You have to go around to the other side. In that tone of voice, she's 18 months. She looked up at me, looked back at her chair, walked around to the other side of the table, climbed up in the other chair, and then sidled her way over to her chair. And, you know, I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to use a baby voice. I didn't have to, to do anything. It was, I just, I talked to her. And that's how we've talked to our children forever. And that's how I talk to all children. I don't talk to them like babies. I talk to them like they're people. Mm-hmm. And people give me really weird looks when I talk to their children. Like, why are you talking to my baby like a person? I don't know, because I thought it's a person. It's a little person. Yeah. And that was something fascinating with Ian, our firstborn, to see how much, how quickly he understood. Mm-hmm. Way before he could uh, verbally communicate with us, mm-hmm. he could understand what we were saying and what we were intending. And it, it was it was mind blowing. It still yeah. is mind blowing the way that that happened. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Another anecdote here. Um, after dinner, 
I was tuning up my guitar because it's been a while since I played. And the twins came over and they both wanted to play with me because I let them strum with their, their one finger as I play. And they're like, no, hold on, guys. Hold on. I need to tune. And they both stood there very patiently waiting as I tuned. And then I played a chord and they both got their finger ready and kind of pulled it out. But they were still waiting for me. And I said, all right, we, you can you can play with me now. And they both started strumming and you know it lasted all of two minutes until they were running around doing other things but and i expect them when i tell them to no wait stop just be still and wait and they did and they do yep right was it rise to the level that they're expected to Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely do and so yeah children children are definitely persons and they definitely understand more than i give them credit for that's so that's kind of the first half of this section the next half of the section is seeing is children seeing themselves as odious uh, an odious little thing and that not because we recollect our faults but because we recollect our childish estimate of ourselves many a bright and merry child is odious in his own eyes and the peace peace when there is no peace of fond parents and friends is little comfort this is from jeremiah chapter six talking about um, people dealing falsely, the prophets and the priests, healing the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then the Lord promising retribution upon them. And he says, which she quotes, stand by the roads, look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, walk in it and find Mm -hmm. rest for your souls. But they say, those people that say, peace, peace, we will not walk in it. So, yeah, backing up a little bit, I, I found the I found the section I I take umbrage with. Uh, there was the educational theories we take him as something between a wax doll and an angel, and then she goes on. So we talked about that, and then she goes on. He sins. He is guilty of greediness, falsehood, malice, cruelty, a hundred faults that would be hateful in a grown up person. We say that he will know better by and by. He will never know better. He is keenly aware of his own odiousness. And I, I, I think I disagree with her there. That children are not necessarily keenly aware of their own odiousness outside of what they've been taught. Because if they've been taught that the things that they're doing are wrong, then they know that the things they're doing are wrong. But otherwise, we don't know our own sin until the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. And that's why we were given the law. Right. Right, that, that's why we were given the law, so that we know how far off we are from the mark. But if you don't give a child the law, and the child doesn't have the Holy Spirit, then he's not going to know that what he's doing is wrong. And as human beings, yeah, sure, we have a conscience, and we have the law of God, the law of nature written on our hearts. But until the Holy Spirit quickens us, I don't think we can see ourselves as sinful, and see the things that we do as sinful and so i think there is also still a a way that we can see it as right and wrong that's true but i think right and wrong is more societal than anything in that Mm, instance that's what i'm going for okay and so yeah as a as a child being raised in a christian home our our children have a sense of right and wrong because we've taught them that sense of right and wrong and and again more deeper than that they have a sense of right and sin not just right and wrong right but again because we've taught that to them. Mm-hmm. I don't think children have that intrinsically. I don't think people are born with the intrinsic knowledge that they are sinful. 
because that's just the state that we're in. And until we're quickened, God can go jump in a lake. I can't say I've really thought about it that way. I even thought about it really. It's it's what Paul Paul's talking about when he's talking about the the flesh. Might have been Peter. I don't know. I can't come up with the the passage off the top of my head. But but talking about the flesh and and we're we're children of wrath. We're we're children of the flesh, and until we're given a new heart, a heart that longs to follow after God, a heart that longs to do what is right and to please Him and to follow His commands, we're totally separate from God. And, and our only desires are those of the flesh. And I think you see that in children when they're brought up in homes where there is no God and there is no right and wrong. And children can become very evil very quickly. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe she's saying that, or assuming, and maybe it was a cultural thing, that children got taught right and wrong. And so, therefore, children know right and wrong. But that yeah. uh, in, in today's day and age, that's absolutely not true, that children don't intrinsically know right and wrong. Because there are many places where they don't learn it. And children can become very evil very quickly. Because they're people. And people can become evil quickly. So anyway, that's a high note to end on. Well, let me <laughs> let me read this to end. It, again. It is well that we ask for the old path, paths. Where the Where is the good way? Hmm. It's not well that in the name of the old paths we lead them into blind alleys. Just back to the call back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. We don't lead them just because that's the way that we've done. Or that we let them follow the new into bewildering mazes. We don't let them go with the prevailing thought of the time just because that's the new and different. Mm-hmm. We look for the old paths, the good way, the straight and the narrow. So that's chapter five. That's chapter five. It ended on a dour note, but all our teaching of children should be given reverently with the humble sense that we are invited in this manner to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Exclu- ex- explanation. explanation. Oof. <laughs>